all who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard. She anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. As gross as the weather has been this past week, we all know sooner or later spring will eventually sashay through the door dressed in pastels and sweet-smelling flowers. It happens every year. But in Kentucky, as we've seen recently, we rarely have a good idea about when that will be. We have another annual rite of seasonal passage here in Kentucky. Of course, with this particular ritual, we have uh, more certainty. I mean, we know precisely when it will happen. It comes every year when May pops up in the calendar. And you know what I'm talking about, right? That's right, the annual attempt to incentivize the houseless to disappear from Metro Louisville landscape. In anticipation of Kentucky Derby, the city elders, fronted by the police, take great pains to beautify the downtown by aggressively inviting houseless people to find someplace else to set up their tents. Apparently, we don't like the idea that thousands of tourists will come to our city and see how we treat our neighbors who can't afford shelter. And so, by fiat, we try to keep them out of sight every year. After the dogwoods bloom, it's time for the annual cleansing of the undesirables. Now, I know the stated reason is that we want tourists to our lovely city to be able to take in all the wonders of Louisville without the <clears throat> unsightly distraction of struggling human beings coloring outsiders' opinions of us, but equally compelling, though rarely uttered out loud, I suspect, is that Moving the houseless out of the public spaces prevents us from confronting the shame of how we allow people to be treated in our name. People that so many have convinced themselves are disposable. 
Now, why do so many in our community care so much that the city removes our neighbors who struggle every day just to stay alive? Well, I, I mean, there are so many houseless people that we can't unsee them. Their presence among us is a constant reminder that though we talk about being a compassionate city, we've got a long ways to go to make that a reality. This annual rite of spring reminds us of our city's failure to live up to the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. I, I guess that maybe that's why recently we've had such a string of politicians heartlessly sort of rationalizing policies that would take food out of the mouths of the poorest people, healthcare away from our most vulnerable, the money out of the pockets of our elderly. And they do this by casually explaining, well, poverty, yeah, it's a bad thing. But it's just like the Bible says, the poor you will always have with you. Now, every time I hear someone justify cruelty by distorting Jesus that way, I think, see, this is what happens when you just let anyone roam around Scripture without adult supervision. <laughs> Did you ever hear anybody say something like this? I know, I know, I know. What, what I want to holler back at the TV is, you know, when Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you, he wasn't expressing a preference. And you may be saying, okay, Professor Smarty Pants. Then what did he mean if he didn't mean that? Well, I'm glad you asked. See, this well-known passage in John opens at the home of his friend, Lazarus, whom he has just raised from the dead. The text says that there are six days from the feast of the Passover. Now, of course, that information hits readers like ominous music in a John Carpenter movie, right? Because everybody knows what happens to Jesus during the Passover. Dun, dun, dun. Anyway, apparently Lazarus and his family are really grateful to Jesus for raising him from the dead because they throw him a big backyard barbecue and while everybody's kicked back in their lawn chairs with a can of Bud Light and a plate of potato salad, Lazarus' sister, Mary, busts open some really expensive perfume and she starts rubbing it all over Jesus' feet. Now this turns out to be kind of a big deal because the perfume was really expensive. And Judas, who apparently has a Good nose for this kind of unconscionable waste. See what I did there with the... Okay. Judas tells the DJ to turn down the Kenny G tribute block and says, look, um, not to be that guy, but uh, did anybody think that maybe we could have put that expensive perfume on eBay and bought some groceries for the poor? Now, it sounds noble, doesn't it? But uh, interestingly, John jumps in with a little parenthetical editorial about how Judas, who's the band's accountant, has been skimming money off the top and, and, and sees this perfume thing as a gold-plated money-making opportunity for himself. And Jesus cuts Judas off at the knees and he says, look, give her a break. 
Okay? I mean, she cracked open the good stuff in anticipation of my burial. Now, it's the next part that seems just so out of character for Jesus. He says, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. What are we supposed to do with that? I mean, Jesus has focused his ministry on challenging systems that keep people in poverty, right? He's a champion of the poor. Are, are, are the politicians right? Is Jesus saying that we don't have to pay attention to the poor because they're always hanging around messing up the tourist industry? All right, well, so what is this all about? Well, for one thing, I suspect Jesus is cracking back at Judas a little bit here. If John is right that Judas has been a little light-fingered in keeping the company books, but is now making a big show of being more committed to the welfare of the poor than his own welfare, well, then Jesus may be calling out Judas's disingenuousness. Like, look, pal, I, I know what you're about. Don't start playing games with the poor here to throw everybody off your scent. See what I did there with the scent? I'm already on to you. You care more about appearances than about the poor. Moreover, translating this verse is more complicated than it might first appear. Without going into a big lesson on Greek verb conjugation, I don't look so relieved. It's important to understand that the Greek phrase we translate as a present indicative, you always have the poor with you, is the exact same form as the imperative. You know, an order, a command. Which would be rendered then, have the poor with you always. Now that changes things up just a little bit, doesn't it? Jesus wants his disciples to understand that poor and low wealth people aren't some distinct underclass that we can move to the shadows because they make us uncomfortable. They're not a problem to be dealt with, not just a reminder of a broken system that rem renders some people disposable. They're our neighbors. They're, they're, they're a part of our community. We need to feed them, not fix them. They're subjects to be embraced as friends and family, not objects to be embarrassed about. They're the people we need desperately to keep among us because they remind us not only of our responsibilities to one another, but of the point of the work for which the authorities executed Jesus. Oh, you may be asking yourself, okay, well, fine, but just because you say so, how, how do we know that Jesus is using the imperative here? How do we know Jesus is telling the disciples to keep the poor among them and not telling them to get comfortable with the fact that there will always be poor people? I see, that's an excellent question. One of the things John's readers would have picked up on immediately was just how much Jesus echoed another important verse, a key part of the Jewish law. Back in Deuteronomy 15, the law says something similar about the reality of poverty and the presence of the poor. It says, 
there will never cease to be some in need on the earth. Does that sound familiar to you? See, both Jesus and Deuteronomy recognize that there will be people whose vulnerability reminds us that our systems have failed to care for everyone. John's readers would likely have made the connection between what Jesus said and what the Deuteronomy passage said. But they also would have remembered that John's Jesus only quoted the first part of the verse. (laughs) Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, it begins, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and the needy neighbor in your land. Now, Fred Craddock, the the great preacher and New Testament scholar, used to talk about palimpsests. Do you know what a palimpsest is? See, this is bonus content. I'm, I'm throwing this in for free. A palimpsest is a term that was first used in textual studies. When people in the ancient world wrote, they couldn't just run down to Staples and pick up another ream of copy paper. They often used parchment, of course, it's made from animal skins. And because parchment was really expensive, they, they, they didn't just crumple it up and throw it away when they finished with the document, they reused it. But to make it usable again, they had to scrape the old parchment clean of its writing, and then they wrote over the top of what used to be on the page. But if you didn't scrape all the old writing entirely off the page, it would sometimes bleed through the new writing. And so there were these ancient, there are these ancient documents where you have to read the new writing with the old writing sort of leaking through it. When John puts the words about the poor always being with you in Jesus' mouth, the writing from Deuteronomy pokes through making it impossible to read the new writing without thinking about the original. In other words, when Jesus spoke the first part about keeping the poor among you, John's readers would have consciously or unconsciously added the second part about opening your hand to the poor and the needy that live in your land. But see, it's, it's not just a single verse in Deuteronomy bleeding through. It's the whole passage in which that verse is found. See, this chapter in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15, is a critical passage in the law because it deals with the commandment about the sabbatical year. what What is that, you may be asking? Well, the passage in Deuteronomy opens by saying, every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts. Every creditor shall remit the claim that is held against a neighbor not exacting it from a neighbor who is a member of the community because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. And the Deuteronomist goes on to say, if there is any among you in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so, for on this account the Lord your God will bless you 
in all your work, and in all that you undertake. <laughs> in other words, the passage that keeps leaking through Jesus' conversation about poverty and the poor is this crucial part of the law, the sabbatical year, which was fundamental to how God's children were told to order their common life. Every seventh year, all the debts were canceled. And there was supposed to be no one in need. Everyone was a valued part of the community, and therefore, everyone was supposed to be taken care of. So when Judas piped up about selling the expensive perfume and giving the proceeds to the poor, he wasn't wrong. The problem, according to John, wasn't that Jesus didn't care about the poor. I mean, remember, Jesus' response harkened back to a famous passage on taking care of the poor. It was that Jesus, excuse me, Judas only appeared to care about the poor. I mean, he'd been robbing Jesus blind. So anything he said about helping the poor was, in this case, merely a, a bit of self-serving image burnishing. But Jesus knows that our relationship to the poor and low wealth is too important for just empty gestures. And throwing a few hundred denarii at the pro problem of poverty isn't nothing. It is something. But if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to help inaugurate this new realm, we need to keep the poor among us. Now, what does that look like? Gustavo Gutierrez, the great liberation theologian and activist, once said, So you say you love the poor. Name them. Name them. Who are they? What do they look like? What sort of things do they care about? What, what, what do they lie awake at night worrying about? What, what kind of world do they dream of for their children? What are their names? See, according to Jesus, we ought to have some idea about how to answer those questions. Salving our consciences by looking away betrays Jesus and the world that God is creating. <clears throat> Shuffling the houseless off to some place where the people can't see them may be good for tourism, but it fails our community and our vocation as Jesus followers by making some of our neighbors expendable. If we care about following Jesus, we need to know where to find him. And if this passage is true, the place to look for him is among the poor. And that's why we must always keep the poor among us. Amen. Oh,